right, hey y'all, and when I say y'all, I mean it because the Sonic Cloth is going on a little bit of a country bender for actually the next couple of episodes. But for today, uh, here's what we have in store. We're going to be doing a little bit of a callback all the way back to episode three of this podcast, which I, I checked right before recording and it, I saw that it came out three years ago, April 17th, 2020, right at the beginning of the pandemic. And that was an episode called Ambient Americana, where I basically went down the rabbit hole of, you know, contemporary ambient country music. I didn't, I didn't call it ambient country at the time, but that's what we're calling it today. And in that episode, I did a little bit of kind of ruminating on a couple of early touch points of the style of music, stuff like uh, Ry Cooter's soundtrack to the film Paris, Texas, and then side two mostly of, of the Brian Eno and Daniel Lanois uh, Apollo record. And, and what we're doing today is digging deeper into the roots of ambient country. Um, I'm fortunate enough to have a, a true teacher and guru with us today, Mr. Uh, Bob Holmes. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Bob. Thank you. And, you know, calling me a guru, that's, that, that's a high bar to, to stand up to. I hope I can, hope I can handle it. Oh, I have I have no fear that you are you're gonna live up to it, but don't don't feel any particular pressure <laughs> or anything like that. <laughs> so you know, I did a little more digging on you after we talked last week, and uh, damn, Bob, you've you've done some things. I know that you you mentioned a couple of them, um, but after some internet sleuthing, I was like, wow, you've been you've been in the game for a minute. Yeah, a, a few minutes. <laughs> so some you know musical projects of yours just want to kind of list these off include uh the crusty gentleman velveta underground rubber rodeo is it new moon new moon yes but it's sus that was ultimately the band that that caught my attention and kind of put one and one together and i think i got into sus around the time that the promise record came out and i've pretty much been on board ever since great yeah, and I also just wanted to give you credit for, I'm not sure it's you coming up with all these band names, but it's, it's a real pleasure reading off these, these hilarious, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> awesome I, band names. I guess, I guess I'm pretty much uh, responsible for most of that stuff. Well, I thought we could um, kind of start off by talking about your, your primary musical vehicle, Sus. So, so who is Sus? Who are the other, other members of Sus, and how did y'all kind of get together? Well, the, the current lineup of Sus is a trio myself, um, Pat Irwin, and Jonathan Gregg. Um, and uh, uh, there was a fourth member who uh, passed away uh, at the beginning of the uh, pandemic. So that was that was tough. And uh, I'm sure we'll get into it, but the last two years of the pandemic have been a story rich with the remaining members of SUS dealing with that loss and how to move on. So. Well, yeah, I, I did read about that, too, and definitely sorry for, for all your guys' loss there. But in terms of, of Sus, you know, kind of going back to, like, your, your musical roots, um, you know, what kind of, like, musical, whether it be, you know, musical, cultural, kind of familial path kind of led you to your interest in ambient country, if you can kind of, like, just b back it up a little bit? Yeah, um, well, that, that is a long... I'll try to keep the answer as brief as possible. Um, the the members of Sus, Jonathan, I've known since the the mid seventies. He was at Brown. Um, I was at Rhode Island School of Design. He was in the the Brown New Wave band. I was in the uh, the 
the RISD New Wave band, and we played together a lot. We toured together back in the uh, 80s. And um, so we've known each other for a long time. Jonathan is also in the um, bluegrass band that we have. That We haven't played too much since uh, uh, Sus took off, but that's the band, The Krusty Gentleman. And we play, I've been playing bluegrass music since the early mid-70s. Uh, I play mandolin, and uh, Jonathan plays dobro. And um, so my, uh, even though some people think of me as like, oh, yeah, you're the guy that was in the one-hit wonder new wave band, Robert Rodeo um, is also in the guy who's been in a hardcore hillbilly bluegrass band for, you know, 40 years playing uh, playing that style of music. And in in my new wave days in the 80s i ran across a band called the ray beats who were um in some ways similar to rubber rodeo they did to the ventures kind of they they had sort of a a twisted look on instrumental music of the ventures and rubber rodeo had a twisted look on uh country western and i i believe we played on some bills together but we definitely traveled in the same circles and that's how that's how I originally met Pat Irwin, who was in the so I've known him for a long time as well. And we've all had crazy musical careers since the late 70s, um, early 80s. Uh, and uh, Pat's been in the B-52s. He was in Lydia Lunch's Eight-Eyed Spy. He was in the Ray Beats, um, and uh, just to name a few. And uh, Jonathan's been just in a multitude of uh, Americana and uh, country rock type bands. And um, so the DNA was all there. Rubber Rodeo um, was known for taking twisted looks at country music and turning it into danceable new wave pop ditties, which was, uh, and uh, we also were known for our videos. We were the first band to be nominated for a Grammy for music videos. So we were one of the early MTV bands back in the day. So everyone sort of knew me as the twisted cowboy guy. You know, about five years or, yeah, not too much more than five years. It seems like a long time ago, but it wasn't that far ago. Um, we were just talking about dream projects over lunch one day. And um, everyone was talking about one thing or another. And, and I said, I would really like to do an ambient country thing. And everyone at the table looked at me, and that included Pat and, and Gary. And they're like, what do you mean ambient country? And I was like, well, you know, I, I don't really know. It's just something that, and I said, the only thing I can describe it is, is imagine if Brian Eno produced Enio Morricone. And they said, I get it. I'm in. How do we do this? <laughs> so uh, everyone sort of like took their own swing at what they thought it was. And uh, basically the Venn diagram of where we all met in the middle is what became sus. Because everyone had a slightly different concept of where this was going to go. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we were all happy to just to share each other's vision. And so, as I said, wherever the commonality was, 
that was sus. And to this day, that's how we make the music. It's like when when the three of us agree on something, that's sus. And we don't agree. That doesn't mean that we agree on everything. You know, Pat will pull it one way. I'll pull it another way. Jonathan will put it pull it another way. But wherever wherever the commonality is, that's what ends up. That's what people end up doing. Yeah, and it's it's interesting you tell that story because you know if you're you're sitting there at lunch with with the guys like people you have you know deep like musical and and just human relationships with right yeah. throughout this term ambient ambient country and like I, I suppose in one world like all members sitting at the table could just kind of nod their heads and know kind of exactly what that means but and and maybe fi- like you know five years later they might know what know what that means even if the band sus never even got together yeah. but uh like yeah how much how much explaining was had to do there i mean i i imagine i mean the other the other gentlemen in the group like coming from a lot of the same touchstones that we're going to get into in this episode right but like everyone's got blinders everyone's got favorites right yeah You're, they're gonna they're gonna wait they're gonna stay in certain areas a little longer than others yeah for sure i mean somebody like jonathan didn't have a deep history or knowledge of what Brian Eno was doing, or ambient music in general. That was fine. Mm. That was fine. Um, Pat obviously knew everything about it and more. I mean, Pat had worked with Philip Glass and had studied under John Cage, so he he didn't need any information in that regard. Um, what usually takes a little bit of explaining to anybody is how I can see the similarities between Glenn Campbell's Wichita lineman and the second side of Eno's Apollo landing. And to me, it's been obvious from day one, but even to this day, I still have to pull the threads together for some people. And, you know, describing the high lonesome sound, how Eno can be high and lonesome just as much as Hank Williams and how how you put together the right combinations of sounds and instrumentations and notes and melody to create this feeling that, that tugs at your heartstrings, opens up the great wide Americana landscape and you just say, ah, that's it. I get it. You know, and um, so sometimes that takes a, a, a little bit of indoctrination to get to that place. But I think that in general... People knew what my background was and my love was for country music as well as new music, experimental music, ambient music, whatever you call it. You know, I would have no problem of um, going back and forth between Fripp and Eno's No Pussy Footing and, um, and uh, you know, Hank Williams record. That's just where my DNA is at. So, um, and 
you know, I guess we get into it in a little bit, but a lot of the artists that make the kind of music in the general genre that Sus is all feel the same way. I mean, it's not, it's not like we just listen to music with slide guitar and, and primitive guitar picking. Our, our background, our DNA comes from places that are much deeper than that. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's a common theme on this show too, is just sort of like removing stigmas and giving equal footing and treatment to disparate musical ideas that come to form something that is a true melting pot, a, a, a true mixture, just having like a, a, a completely egalitarian approach to the music that runs through your veins. But like, would you say that the, the original members of Sus, like it seems like you guys all had like country like running through your veins though. Like, and perhaps that's not where other ambient country artists like necessarily their starting place. I wonder if that makes a difference. I wouldn't say that country is any of our starting places. I, it just, mm. it was something that we picked up along the way. L- listen, the three guys in Sus are all the same age. We're all 67 years old. That that meant that we were in high school in um, 72, 70, you know, 71, 72, 73, 74. Now, I don't need to tell you what high school kids were looking, listening to at that period of time. You know, it was the Grateful Dead. It was, it was uh, uh, Dark Side of the Moon. It was uh, Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. It was Roxy music. It was, uh, it was prog rock. It was glam rock. It was country rock. You know, all of the, I mean, uh, for fear of sounding like an old man, that post, Summer of Love, post-Woodstock generation of those four years, you look at what the music that was on the charts in those four years, and it's like nuts. And and, and even if you're just driving around in your car or listening to your 8-track or going to parties, you've just been bombarded with that music. And, um, and for better or worse, that music has been around ever since then. And now we're talking 50 mm-hmm. years later, and people are still listening to that music. So it's just, it's in our DNA. I can practically hum the whole Dark Side of the Moon album, and I don't even own it. You know, I never owned it. it you know, if somebody yeah. asked me, are you a Pink Floyd fan? I'd say, I, I don't know. It's like, are you a fan of air? Because it's just there <laughs> that I breathe all the time. You know, it's like... So, yeah, everyone is on the same page with with what was coming out then um, at the time is inescapable. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the the ambient country podcast. So like in learning about sus, I came to find out that, uh, you know, more or less, I don't know if it's like a sus podcast out there in the world, but more specifically, it's, you know, your uh, ambient country podcast. Which is fantastic. Um, it is, a, a, you know, I would say describe it as like a music-led exploration of ambient country and kind of all of its styles, incarnations, its roots, and a lot of like ad- I would say adjacent kind of musical rabbit holes as well. Right. So I imagine you've got the market cornered on on dedicated ambient country podcasts. <laughs> um, what inclined you to start it, and and was that related to what you had started with Sus? Well, a lot of it came. Because for a lot of people, Sus came out of nowhere, right? You know, they knew who we were as musicians, as past artists and producers of other people's music. Um, 
I don't think people expected us to come together and make the kind of music that we did. And then when we did that, a lot of people were attributing to the fact that we created a genre. Now, I'll be the first person to to thank them for thinking that, but that's not really the case. We Maybe we were the first people to to realize that there was a genre of music hiding in plain sight and people just didn't really consider it because when we came out and we made this music, all of a sudden we, we saw that there was a lot of other artists who'd been doing this or similar things for a while, you know, whether it's William Tyler or Chuck Johnson or Mary Lattimore. Um, and, and they weren't calling themselves, uh, ambient country um, they weren't even calling themselves ambient americana but they were still pulling from some of the same sounds and instrumentation and ideologies and backgrounds that we were and the more we looked the more artists we found and so the podcast became a way of saying listen there's a lot of great stuff out there i'm glad you guys are paying attention to sus but there's a lot of other artists out there that if you're not already paying attention to, you should be. And oh yeah, and by the way, here's music that, you know, uh, here's other music that sort of shows where the roots are. Now, everybody brings up, when they're, when they're talking about ambient Americana or ambient country, they talk about two, maybe three tentpole releases. We've already talked about one of them, which is Eno's and Lanois Apollo Atmospheres. And the other one is always, always Rykuter's Paris, Texas. And if, if you're to throw a third one in, it's probably um, it's probably Bruce Langhorn's uh, soundtrack to the hired hand from the early seventies. Um, but that's just th- those are the easy pickers. There's all the other stuff, you know. I obviously, you could go the whole route and talk about Enio Morricone and stuff like that, but there's just so much more to pull from and so much more context for, to put the kind of music that we make and some of our favorite artists in that as soon as you start hearing it in that context, you're like, oh, well, of course. You know, you cannot listen to the first three or four minutes of Miles Davis's In a Silent Way without realizing oh my goodness look it was there you know it's everything's there but the pedal steel almost you know so and or uh you know anything from the second side of dark side of the moon you take the vocals Mm -hmm. off and you'd say whoa this sounds like a lot like a lot of the kind of music that we're listening to today or some of the grateful dead or anything like that obviously the grateful dead and jerry garcia are a huge influence on us, whether we like it or not. Yeah, do I own Working Man's Dead? And and uh, yes, I do. do. You know, do I know how to play uh, most of the songs from Working Man's Dead or American Beauty on the on the mandolin? Yes, of course I do. But once again, much like uh, Pink Floyd, it was just in the air. I just. It's not like I sat down to learn it. I just know it because I lived during that period of time. And you, just had to know it 
Yeah, you didn't have to dig deep to find it. But if you're starting from now and kind of digging back, it may be something that you miss, even though to you it's so obvious. Yeah, right? no, and, and a lot of that, you know, some people have only lived with those albums for 20 years you know, uh, at the most. Maybe some people have only lived with those albums for 10 years, maybe even less. Who knows? I have no idea. And that's what's so illuminating about the podcast, or one of, one of the aspects of it, is that you're you're dipping your your toes in new, old, like old old '90s everything. And 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 I would also say one of the things I appreciate the most about your show is your intention. And maybe you know, correct me if I'm getting a little too far fetched here, but like demonstrating how wide this corner of music is in in showing artists who are not just like true masters of their respective instrument, but also like innovating it in such a way that all of these sort of new expressions um, are being created within this realm. And, and I think you really make the case for them all falling into this uh, world of ambient country. And, you know, some examples of this would be like, you know, with pedal steel, Bruce Kaplan, you know, Luke Schneider, Chuck Johnson, oh, yeah. kind of like a, a big three, you know, those artists in relation to pedal steel in relation to ambient country, you know, Mary Lattimore, what she's doing with a harp, Andrew Tuttle with a banjo, you know, guitar, you could go all day, but like, I know you, you know, you have an affinity towards William Tyler and yeah. Steve Gunn and Yasmin Williams, those kinds of things where it's like, you know, in attempting to flesh out this concept of Amy country, I think your podcast is, does such a good job of like straddling a line where you're not too rigid about what it can or can't be while setting some basic parameters and, and thematics around it. Yeah. I think that, and one of the reasons for the podcast is um, is also trying to widen what we think the description of that is, because it's not, you know, we've come around to it's not ambient country. It's not ambient music with country influences. It's it's like ambient being instrumental and country being the very wide, inclusive aspect of like mm. this is how big the landscape is of instrumental music out there. Like and space. Yeah, yeah, you know. Like physical so, space. Yeah. You know, jazz falls into that. Uh, uh, amazing jazz artists ranging from Miles Davis to Jeff Parker. You know, uh, you know, it's just, it, and um, Bluegrass is in there, and uh, John Cage is in there, and uh, Philip Glass yeah. is in there. It's, uh, it's, these are the artists who have influenced us. Um, you know, Tortoise is another great. Explosions in the sky. Post rock is in there. Um, it goes, it goes on and on. And uh, be, being able to appreciate the kind of music that Sus does, or the artists, the new artists that we like, in this larger context of what what is instrumental music these days, is what really excites me. And even though we've only been doing this for a short period of time, it's amazing how everyone is just sort of widening their scope all the time about what constitutes the kind of music that is quote unquote acceptable within this niche genre, which, which is great. I mean, it's just very exciting to see. Yeah. It's, it's almost, I know this is not your intention. So it's as if a subgenre is being like created in live time, because I think you could do a podcast like this and sort of this, like, you know, pulling together the cloth, you know, the cloth from all these different styles of music. I think you could probably do this with some other styles of music, but honestly, like I was doing this, the other, thinking about this the other day, conceptually, I was trying to think of like other styles of music that this could, if you just took, if you were just interested in something like pulling in the threads from all the other ones. And it's, I was just struggled to, 
to correlate it to anything um, where there's just so there's just uh, the pieces of music and the categories of music that we're going to go and in, get into here pretty soon that go into this are just are, are so wide and still being like un, unraveled and discovered. And as new artists come out in this field, which like I, I would say this is very much a scene right now, um, at least a scene of collaboration and like you're in that scene. So maybe, you know, you can tell us a little bit about like feedback you get from artists who obviously they, you know, maybe they don't call themselves these things, but like, do they like, is there a sense of kinship like amongst amongst one another? Um, obviously a lot of these artists that you feature on the podcast, they collaborate with one another on each other's records all the time. They're playing live in each other's groups. Yeah, I think that everything you said speaks to the truth of the matter. I, everyone listens to everyone else's music. I think that most of the people, I was surprised at how popular the podcast became. And most of the people who listen to the podcast beyond the fans are musicians, writers, editors for playlists and stuff like that, who are like, wow, this, you know, everyone's interested in what everyone else is doing. And that's really really gratifying i you know i can i can only speak to it because back in the 80s you know i was accused of starting another genre called country punk with rubber rodeo and uh that was not as inclusive it was like it became very people wanted things to be very strict Anytime you bring punk into the equation, yeah, it's gonna yeah. be a it's gonna be a rule book. Yeah, which was which was strange. Even though the artists all respected each other, the press wanted to separate the posers away from the people that were really doing. But uh, in contrast, with podcasts like yours and magazines and just general press, they've been very supportive of everyone's input in everyone's uh, releases, which has been great. The Puddle Motel, which is probably the definitive Cosmic Americana blog out there, released a uh, compilation of 32 artists, you know, 32 quote-unquote Cosmic Americana artists. And uh, it is much like a brotherhood, sisterhood kind of feeling. Everybody wants everybody else to succeed. It's, it's hard enough to get by these days you really have to help everybody get get heard and of course and, and and i love the wide yet intentional net that you're, you're casting here because it, it validates sort of this this idea this liberating idea that you can cut your teeth on like roots music like bluegrass country 70s rock you could you know love it to death right um and that can uh, perfectly coexist with like uh, you know, highfalutin minimal compositions by Philip Glass and Terry O'Reilly, and that you can like sort of break the sort of like you know, coastal to rural kind of class sort of distinctions that are on the surface there. And and you know what? Like while we're having this party, let's invite let's invite Robert Fripp, right? Let's let's invite Miles. Let's get Florian Frick in there. Yeah, Mark Nelson. Like <laughs> everyone, everyone can come. Yeah, no, that's that's for sure, because we're all listening to that music, you know, and in many of the cases, uh, even the bigger names that you mentioned there are listening to what we're doing. You know, it's it, you know, it's still going. Well, even if someone is not listening to that stuff and then they get turned on to it when they when they do hear it for the first time, it's very possible that there will be such a 
there'll be a special kind of attachment to her an understanding or an aha kind of like moment. See, you know, that you spend less time trying to like uh, grasp it or like see where it fits, right? Because you just have this sort of, this sort of like built-in thematics like are already there. Yeah, we're always amazed, you know, when we hear that, you know, some of our heroes have found us and listened to our music and, and uh, it needs no introduction to them. They completely understand everything and what it is that we're doing. And it's like, okay, great. You know, that's, that's, we love the fact that it's connecting with people. We more often than not hear that it connects with people rather than we hear that it puts people off, you know, and, and believe me, when you put the, the word country in with anything, the first reaction can be very polarizing. <laughs> that's just the way it is. It's like putting the word cowboy in there. Uh, people have a very positive or negative initial reaction to the word alone, let alone what you know what it is that you're trying to do. So. No, for sure. People will, people will politicize it sometimes. I mean, when I grew up, like the, there was a common saying, like, what kind of music deals to like a lot of people would say everything but rap and country. Yeah. Like that was sort of a, a thing where it's just like everything is valid except for these two. And that, I don't know. I think people just kind of ran away with that. And obviously t in today's, in the way people discover music these days, which look, there's, there's certainly downsides, especially to the artists like these days. But like the upside is that people really are just all over the place when it comes, when it comes to their tastes and um, the, these sort of old rule, old rules or musical bullying tactics of the past are, are kind of just like disintegrating right in front of us. Yeah. When I, when I grew up, there was a phrase that's, that, that was similar to yours. It was like, I like all kinds of music, country and Western. <laughs> so, <laughs> as if that was everything. And, um, uh, yeah, so it uh, it's still polarizing. I mean, we people say, why do you call it ambient country and not like ambient Americana or, or cosmic Americana or something like that? And um, I have to go back and remind them. I said, you know, when we started making music, especially when we started making music professionally, there was no term called Americana. Americana as it applies to music, is a relatively new term. Yes, now it applies to lots of types of music and lots of archival music that goes back and back and back. But in 1970, you didn't call Glenn Campbell or Dolly Parton or George Jones or even the Flying Burrito Brothers or whatever. You didn't call it Americana music. You called it country music. It was country. Uh -huh. That was just a thing. It was like a flag in the sand. And um, and the Flying Burrito Brothers is a great example of that. They put that flag through, and it was meant to jar people to like, wait a minute, you know, you know, this was before even the term country rock became common thing to call. But they're like, whoa, you can be a hippie with long hair and respect country music. That, that blew people's minds in, in 1968. 
when the rolling very hetero heterodox yeah 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 so and that's kind of like where we come from it's like yep that's the that's the flag that that we started waving okay well i think we should get into your picks bob um sure we've got a good amount to explore here um this is definitely a departure from how i usually do things on the show generally i'm like you know, pick a rabbit hole, give me like six to eight tracks, and we're just going to like get into the weeds on, on each of these. And it's a representation, a starting point. But what instead what we're doing here basically is this idea of like the stock. Like there's key categories of music that you deem as important. Obviously, others have, have deemed as important. It's, it's interesting because when you start to look up playlists like on different streaming services and stuff, I see so much of this same stuff swirling around. And then like on the internet, I see that like you and Sus have like been responsible for kind of creating a lot of these playlists <laughs> or being asked to. So I, I really do feel like you guys are, you know, dictate, not dictating, like, you know, you're, you're ambassadors. I don't know, I suppose. Yeah. Well, no one's I, holding your feet, feet to the fire on this stuff. You know what I mean? We're talking about music here, but. Yeah, no, I think I appreciate that. We, you know, we do know that other people follow our playlists or our tastes to get a clear idea of context, you know, and that's, that's, that's really what it is. It's, we're not putting out there unknown artists. You know, many times on our podcast, we, we definitely, we love it when we can get young unknown artists on there and talk about them. But we love that that we can put them up against some very well-known artists and it still makes sense. And that's the, I, I think it's just our, our sense of context and perspective that uh, maybe is unique. Yeah. And the fact that, like you said before, like this music, <laughs> like you were, you were taking in some of this music in live time. Yeah. We, we were, we were there when it, when it was originally released. So it was not like, it, it doesn't feel archival to us. It's like, it's a living thing. <laughs> So this first category of music is this is a big one um, soundtracks. So you know right off the bat, like this, this category makes a lot of sense, right? And I, you talk about this in your podcast too. Like so much of this music seems to have like a visual accompaniment to it, right? And it typically conjures up you know maybe scenes from old TV and movies. And and I think it's because you make the point that ambient country is already kind of built into our consciousness as Americans through popular media, right? Yeah, exactly. So like why, why soundtracks um, as, as a whole, and then we'll get into your, your selections here as well. Well, I, I think that soundtracks as a whole, it was because everything you just said, it's, they were just in the air, whether it was a, put it this way. When, when I was growing up, when all the guys in Sus were growing up, the top five shows on TV were Westerns. I mean, just think about that for a second. I mean, it's just, you know, and the only thing that knocked them off the charts after a while was like, you know, the man from uncle or, or some spy show, or, uh, James Bond knockoff. But so that meant 
whether you were going to the movies or watching TV, you were hearing this stuff that, though it may be, it has no basis in reality other than that all of these people making scores for TV and movies created a sound that everybody associated with cowboys and westerns and the great American thing. And once again, it was just in the end. We, we knew all of it. And, you know, and so when, when you talk about soundtracks, it, it was just the air that we breathe, you know, to the, to the point where Pat, Pat Irwin, you know, he's one of the most uh, trusted and best uh, uh, movie and TV scores out there. He just did uh, the latest um, season of Dexter, done a ton of TV stuff, ton of movie stuff. He just released, Nickelodeon just released his um, soundtrack to Rocco's Modern Life that he did. It's not, none of this stuff is Western, but understanding the power and the emotive strength of soundtracks is an important part of us. But ambient music are not soundtracks and vice versa. You know, we, soundtracks are meant to connect a specific image with a specific sound, and that's not what Sus does. One of the best reviews we got lately is that the reviewer said, Sus is like the best soundtrack to an imaginary Western. And then the writer, writer corrected himself. No, I, I let me change that. Sus is the best soundtrack as a Western. So that mm-hmm. that that made us quite happy. It's like we we created a sound that doesn't have to be associated with an image that conjures up its own image. And um, so in these and this some of the stuff that you're about to play is that you know, it goes beyond Ennio Morricone and all the spaghetti western stuff. It goes beyond Ry Cooter's Americana stuff. This goes into stuff that that um, probably affected us much deeper than than those those guys did because uh, John Barry's work and uh, Tooth Fieldsman uh, theme from a Midnight Cowboy. I mean. <laughs> where, where do I begin with that? It's just, it's, you know, the first Oscar nominated X rated movie, and it has the most amazing soundtrack of all time. It's just, it's beautiful. And in the the harmonica, you can definitely hear that sort of thing running in some of the sus songs. Um, and in, on the album that you mentioned earlier, Promise, there's there is a, the first song on the first side is called Midnight, and basically that's our deconstruction of the mood of what constituted midnight. You know, the harmonica is just like. That was one of the things. It was like, okay, how can we distill 
not better because we can never make it better, but how do we distill our feelings from the theme from the Maccabi into the intro? And you're playing the harmonica on stuff, right? <laughs> gotcha. I am no two yeah. at Spillane. I, I'm sad to say in a lot of these instances where there is a movie, I, I have not seen the film. Uh, and I'll let you know when I have. But Midnight Cowboy is one that's, it's in the lexicon, but I've never seen it. 1969 American drama film. It's based on novel, right? Yeah. Uh, the the novel. Same name. And, and actually the film, it's a kind of a short novel, but the film is only about the second half of the novel. The first half of the novel is about Joe Buck's childhood. The second half is about him being a, um, uh, male prostitute so the movie is only really about his meeting it's mm. a great book and who's who's john barry well john barry is um an amazing film composer most people know him for the work he's done for the james bond films but this is mm. uh, this is is uh, one of his main claims to fame for me anyway and, uh, i mean that the 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 two songs that came out of the soundtrack for Midnight Cowboy, where the theme from Midnight Cowboy, which you can hear in any grocery store or any elevator to the end of time, you know, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, and, um, and then everybody's talking as sung by, um, Harry Nelson. And, and I felt disconnected because when I heard this, I'm like, okay, yeah, I know this, of course. And then <laughs> I was like, oh, this is, this is Midnight Cowboy. This is the association. This is like a theme said, song to an X-rated movie. Who knew? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's get into the next one. Um, Bruce Langhorn track is called "Ending." This is from the Hired Hand. Yeah, was that from like 1971, 72, something like that? Seventy-one. Yeah. Um, Langhorn composed the music for the Peter Fonda Western film "The Hired Hand," nineteen seventy-one. Instruments on here, sitar, fiddle, and banjo. And of course, we're talking about Mr. Tambourine Man here. Exactly. So this film is one of the classic hippie Western, hippie psychedelic Westerns of all time. I mean, it makes little or no sense. No one's ever going to watch it for the acting or even the storyline, but it just captures a mood of what hipster Hollywood was like in 1971 post post Woodstock and like um, post the summer of love we're starting to slide into the burnt out hippie era Mm -hmm. and uh, Bruce Langhorn made this soundtrack from beginning to end it's a classic Um, Bruce Langhorn was made immortal because of um, he was the tambourine man that uh, Bob Dylan sang of in Mr. Tambourine Man. But he was, you know, a guitar player, percussionist, and obviously... Part of the Greenwich Village. Yeah, Greenwich Village, folky. And the sort of starkness and open scratchiness of this album affected a lot of musicians. Practically everybody that I know points to this album is like whoa this is uh, it just sort of came out of nowhere there's nothing to compare it to either it's not like he did anything like this before or after mm-hmm. he made a lot of music in his career but this album 
just stands out as just sort of a piece unto itself. Yeah, this is a beautiful track. I, I saw this described on Bandcamp as in a review, actually, someone's review as Prairie Ambience. And I was like, No, there you but, go. Um, I love the, is it a, is it like a flute light? It's like a flute like instrument. Yeah, or a recorder or something. Yeah, something uh, very, there's the, uh, the delay on it, the slapback delay, which creates this whole very modern sound to it, even though, you know, uh, using tape delay at that period of time was, I mean, even Eno hadn't gotten to it by that by that period so yeah true if you like tape delay wait till we get to the kraut rock section <laughs> so this was one that i i was just completely unfamiliar with and uh, yeah i can't wait to listen to this whole thing moving into something a little more modern um but maybe the spirit of it is not so modern nick cave and warren ellis track is destined for great things this is from the assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford soundtrack. This I have seen. Yeah, no, this is uh, just a great soundtrack. And just the simplicity of Warren Ellis's violin and Nick Cave's piano playing. It is, it's modern and ancient at the same time. The, the melodies are really simple. They're not overly produced. And those two have just done a crazy amount of, great soundtracks i think they just did the soundtrack for blonde the um mm-hmm. but they're always doing something they're there it's just really good and and you can definitely definitely hear bits and pieces uh pat's piano style of playing on a lot of our more recent tracks really captures some of this strange feel these two get together special things happen um you know in the context of nick cave albums in the context of nick cave and the bad seeds albums and then working together on soundtracks here as well yeah and then you know i love his you know warren ellis's uh dirty three stuff is great too of course yeah beautiful stuff they've done a lot of soundtracks together like you said there's too many to name here but there's a handful of films that they've done that thematically it's in the realm of Americana and Western, even if it's not taking place on this continent, yeah. still the sim- similar kinds of, of, of themes, particularly like, you know, colonization and like frontier making and stuff like that. Like there's that really stark kind of thing that they do occasionally dips into pretty dark territory too, um, which gives you like a sort of emotional spectrum for this style of music too. Like they're not afraid to, and uh, so, some of these movies like this one, the proposition, I, brutal movies yeah they can go beyond the americana instrumentation too which is amazing they've got a they've got a wide range of sounds and arrangement styles that they pull from it's very impressive yeah this gets sometimes in a very noisy kind of territory too i mean i'm thinking of you know the, the road hell or high water i think they did that one lawless proposition when those movies come out and i see that they scored it like 50 percent of the reason i'm going to see the movies is just to hear the music you know? exactly are Dirty Three an influence for for you and for Sus? Um, I, I I actually came to them because of their soundtrack 
together. So I went back and and listened to it, and um, I do like it. Yeah, um, it's it's very demanding music. It's not music that you yeah. put on in the background and just listen to uh, while you're doing something else. It, it's it's really demanding. Dude. I did an episode a little while back with uh, Ian King. Um, we were talking about he's an author. We we're talking about post rock, and he's talking about Dirty Three. And how one of the things he loves about them is that the drums are taking like almost a lead, like there's a transference of expectations of instrument and the drums take on this like lead guitar kind of role where it's like really, really like doing signaling everything. And like um, the guitars tend to be percussive and then like, you know, lines are created from the drums. It's just, it's very interesting, like, you know, taking roots inflected kind of post rock and improvisation and then bringing like those guys all have to be jazz guys too. yeah no, they, the uh, drummer of the dirty three we were just at big years and his stayed in the same hotel and his room was right across the hallway from my room and oh, we'd always seem to be going out to breakfast at the same time and, and uh, oh my god you know the word he's in xyloris Zy- now i forget the name i i don't know i'm, I'm sure i'm mispronouncing it I'm I'm famous for my mispronunciation, so that's probably that's okay. You're you're, you're on the right show. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> the last uh, soundtrack that you had here, and this one caught me by surprise. Um, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. The track you picked is "Hand Covers Bruise." This is oh. the Social Network soundtrack, that's which I've I know is a a much like heralded, celebrated soundtrack. But yeah, still, this one this one caught me by surprise, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, you can listen to it in. If, if you threw a pedal steel on there, you'd almost think it was a sus track. And the, the work that those two do together, it's just unbelievable. But I, you know, that I've always been a Nine Inch Nails fan. I've always been a Trent Reznor fan. Not that you would know that by listening to the music that I create, but, um, but that the album that Trent did called Ghosts, um, yeah. that has the one track in it that, got turned into a pop song um yes. pop country song um but th- there's some just amazing stuff in there you know that his use of detuned piano and loops and synthesis it's you know everything but the pedal steel is so much of that stuff is where our head is at as well and i think that just the beautiful piano work um this is a song that pat chose very influential to um you know, it speaks to Pat's side as a movie scorer, but also just to his side of like just classically beautiful piano playing. And then there's those like kind of choppy strings yeah. that are happening. It's like almost like equal parts horror film, equal parts ambient kind of soundscape. And I know that this, I, I remember seeing this movie back in the day and there's just a lot of anxiety in the movie, oh, right? Definitely. Like, there, he uses these like these background sounds and loops that they're just like automatic tension filters. It's like, oh, mm. something, you know, even though everything on top mm. is like nice and smooth and there's this, tense under a uh, toe and uh, 
I, I just love the way that he and Atticus blend out together. Yeah, I mean, like ambient country. I mean, you can't yeah. come into it expecting, you know, prairie ambience or whatever we were on with the Bruce Langhorn thing. Like, yeah. this covers a, a, a wide spectrum of human, you know, attachment and uh, glory and devolvement, like everything. The Ghost series, for those who don't know, is essentially like Trent Reznor kind of and his collaborators exercising their, their like dark ambient kind of impulses and certainly a huge, you know, um, influence on that stuff. Really, really great. I, I didn't know this before I researched it. Um, the track 34 Ghost 4 was sampled on Lil Nas X's Old Town Road. But the more interesting thing is that it earned Trent Reznor and Atticus Rock's like Country Music Association Award nomination. Right. It's also, so. <laughs> it, you know, considering all the amazing stuff that Trent Reznor or Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross have done together. That's his, he got writing credit on that song. It's his biggest hit of all, of, of his whole life, you know? And it's like... <laughs> of, of a guy who has hits. like Yeah, who, who already had hits, but still, this is even bigger, you know? So, God bless him. That's because that's, that song was on the charts for like some record and oh, yeah. or whatever. But, you know, knowing that, don't let anyone ever tell you that you can't connect country music to like 90s alt industrial rock. Because no. we just did. It can happen. <laughs> it can happen. Yeah, so I think th that's going to do it for for soundtracks. I think that that's that's an awesome place to start. Yeah. If we're already getting getting past the cooters, the the enos, and the enyos, right of the world, so love that. Let's um let's get into another big one. You had you had quite a few picks here. This is classical music. Um, I think a lot of people, including myself, would ask where this one fits in. In fact, this whole this whole section really like you had a lot of picks here that I I find. As a non-musician, it's, it's a little harder to draw the lines uh, in this one. It, from the outside, it may be, but from the inside, maybe not so much. As I, as I mentioned earlier, Pat worked, Pat studied under John Cage. So, mm -hmm. you know, his, Pat really comes from, you know, whether we call it classical or new classical or new music, that's, that's really his background. You know, as a uh, composer, uh, he studied under Cage. He worked very closely with um, Philip Glass and um, the rest of these artists. Uh, you know, the rest of the artists that we put on our list are either are either contemporaries or have been in. You know, whether you're talking Terry Riley or Steve Reich or whomever, those the, that was the music. We listen to, we still listen to, and the ability to turn a whole music genre on its head by a different um, approach to composing just influenced us wildly. And you know those, you know all of those artists in there, you know w whether you're talking Eric Satie or or John Cage, obviously Philip Glass. There is not a huge leap from there, those artists to Brian Eno. Uh, mm. There's um, Brian Eno would say he was heavily influenced by all of those artists, and I think that Eno was our gateway drug to a lot of those artists. Uh, I know that I never owned a Philip Glass or Steve Reich or Terry Riley record until I was introduced to them by 
Eno. Now, Pat, on the other hand, was well aware of these artists. Uh, he didn't need Eno to get him there. But, but I did. And it took me a while in the early days to figure out what they were doing. But now it just, it seems obvious to me. Like, oh, of course. He would be. Do you mean that in the sense of like technique even? Yeah, not, not only technique, but looking at a genre and saying, how can I deconstruct it and then reconstruct it in a way that uses many of the same rules, but in a new format that will surprise and demand people's attention. And, get people to to listens listen to combinations of notes and melodies and textures in a way that at first could seem off-putting but then once you get below the surface it's like well of course you know, you know it's hard to imagine that people ever thought that an artist like Satie's music was out there now it just seems like it, it seems like brunch music something you'd have on in the back and you you know the cheesiest um, <laughs> uh, restaurant, um, or you you hear them in you know um, you know commercials for adult diapers or something like. It's just like how how this music is. A lot of this music has been co opted commercially in ways that we we forget how often that in a day to day that we hear Philip Glass. We hear him all the time. We don't even know we're hearing him. And he's just been, uh-huh. he's been, he's been stuck into so many commercial aspects that we just take for granted that sound, that approach, those melodies. But there, there was a time when it just pissed people off. They couldn't even imagine how out there this music was. And, um, and, you know, once again, this was just music that was in the air for us. That we just soaked in and and turned around and regurgitated in, in a lot of ways, you, you know, and just going to influences influences that influenced influencers, whether you're talking Eno or Nick Cave or Trent Reznor or anybody, they all they were all listening to that music as well. You might not hear it directly in their in their output, but they were aware of it. Absolutely. Let's and let's start with this uh, late 1800s with this uh, Sati track. This is uh, Twa Gymnopedis. I'm probably saying that wrong, but you have heard this track. Everyone's heard this track. Everyone's heard it. This this is this is just one of those things. You know, I was afraid to even put it on the list, but Jonathan said, "No, you know, it's there," and and, and you know, his music, whether he ref referred to it this way or back in his time it was referred to by other sources as furniture music meaning something that was just meant to be sat in and lived with and, you, know, you don't have to pay attention to the furniture but you need to use the furniture to for the environment so
Well, this is great. We need to take it out of the the previous context you were talking about and 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 place it in here. Mm-hmm. I thought this was a really interesting one. I have seen this film. Um, Philip Glass's uh, track "Clouds" from uh, Koya Nakatsi. Yeah. Um, Koya Nakatsi is a 1982 American experimental film by Godfrey Reggio, um, with music composed by Philip Glass, but performed by the Philip Glass Ensemble, conducted by Michael Reisman. First time I saw this movie. First time I ever did mushrooms. Huh. So perfect combo. Yeah, and this is another one of those things that more people have heard it than re- than they realize. You know. If you'd said, have you ever heard Philip Glass? Some people, ah, I don't know, maybe, you know. But you you know this music from a million different ways. You know, that has been used in phone commercials. It's been used, in, you know, behind uh, football footage. You know, it's just all the time. Oh, but it works so beautifully with this particular film. This is like a, you know, for those who don't know, a non-narrative film. It's not really a documentary, right? But it's the first in this trilogy i think of films i mean this could this could i suppose could have also worked in the soundtrack but it really musically falls in this in this category of like minimalism and, yeah and then you had a couple others here you have uh, pauline oliveros uh the track's called lear this is from the 1989 album deep listening well pauline is another favorite of pat's and you know th- these are people that are just bending bending the rules of um of composing music and you know uh, bending the rules of what sounds are appropriate and whatever you know w- one of the things that uh, happened for us at Big Ears is that Pat actually got to meet and have breakfast with Morton Sabatnik it was like whoa you know that this is a huge influence on just about everyone he was like 92 or something so and Pauline is definitely Morton, Morton Sabatnik too there's just a lot of uh, great classical composers. You know, it, like if you talk to somebody like a Chuck Johnson who went to Mills uh, College, he considers himself a composer. And, and a lot of the people in our genre of music consider themselves composers. And, and, I, and I think that uh, egotistically, I have a hard time of, uh, of calling myself a composer. But I do have to admit that... Uh, Sus music is composed. It is sculpted like a composition. So looking at people who who take a limited number of notes over an indefinite period of time and sculpting an environment in a sound in a classical way and then turning it on its head is really something that appeals to all of us. Well, in Sus, you guys just did four nights in New York right? yeah. and sold out shows. Congrats. Does improvisation come into play when you guys are playing in that live setting? That's, or? that's, the, that's the number one question. Our music is highly structured, highly structured. But within that structure, we know where we can push and pull. Um, so we know where we can spread out. We know what the parameters are within what we can do. It's never exactly the same night after night, but the intent, you know, we know the sounds that we're going to use. We know the overall structure. And then the fun for us is like, how can we push and pull against that structure every night to make each night unique? But jamming is not something that we do. We are not a jam band. Though we all have the chops to do many, many different things on our chosen instruments. 
we choose to limit the amount of notes in, in, in our approach and, and really capture the moment that was originally recorded. And we'll get into the jammier side of yeah, this we'll, later. Yeah, we'll definitely get there. Yeah. You know, it's just we're in this, this classical camp here. And it's interesting you mentioned, like, I, I, th- I totally see that in, in being familiar with some of the artists in this world. Like, I think Ch- even Chuck's been doing a lot of soundtrack oh, work yeah. lately, He's right? Great. This Pauline Oliveira's track's beautiful. The textures on this are outstanding. This might be like kind of the droniest thing on the list. And, you know, that's saying something. Yeah. But definitely very meditative. And I know that, you know, one of her philosophies is sort of this, this practice of radical listening or attention keeping, right, with music. Um, and then the the last pick you had here was John Luther Adams' uh, Become Ocean. I was familiar with this. Oh, I, I, I wasn't. I only recently became. One night while we were preparing for the sessions you just mentioned, I was staying at Pat's and he said, I got to play you this album. You know, it's, it's, I, I didn't really know John Luther Adams and I, I was floored. Just the use of this orchestra slowly, bit by bit, building these huge tidal waves of sound and then then releasing it. And it's so organic and it's so moving. And, you know, I, I don't mean to put words in Pat's mouth, but the way the, uh, the track is composed and the way the songs are arranged, it's very hard to separate who's doing what at any given juncture. It's just this monolith of instruments that are all tightly intertwined. And at our best, and we have moments of it, you know, that's that's what we strive for. Where you can't tell the difference between the pedal steel or the synthesizer or, or the harmonica or whatever instrument we're playing, that they just meld themselves into this unique thing and they come to a peak and then they release and then they separate and you can hear the instruments in their in their own right and then they reassemble in a different way to create another unique sound that and that's that's really exciting and going back to what you originally about how our live shows it is about that build release rebuilding release sort of thing that just makes me think of Stars of the Lid as well, Mas- like absolute <laughs> oh, yeah. mas- masters of what you were just describing, where there are swells, and I couldn't tell you. I mean, I've seen live videos of them playing. I mean, I, and it's yeah, all these instruments are on stage for me to see, and even then, I'm getting you know crisscrossed in terms of what am I hearing and oh, they, how those are they guys bleeding are into each other? Yeah, they, I agree. Yeah, they, uh, they have two of the greatest albums ever made. For sure, yeah. <laughs> All right, the refinement and the tired sounds, yeah, yeah. And I love, I love the Dead Texan too, and I love all of their, you know, I love uh, uh, Winged Victory and uh, 
everything that they do separately, you know, it's mm-hmm. they're amazing. Definitely, cont- yeah, continuation def- certainly within this world that we're talking about now. Yep. Um, that's everything you had. I did want to throw one more thing, just because I was curious. Does um, Gavin Breyer's uh, factor in? Oh yeah, guys, in any kind of way? Yeah, definitely. Once again, that's more in Pat's camp, but definitely that that sort of stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. it, it's there. This podcast, we're talking about the deep, deep roots. So that doesn't mean it's always going to be obvious, but it's 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 in there. You know? mm-hmm. And once you start putting some of this music up against some of the other music that we're playing, you see that there's, you know, Pauline Oliveras is a, is a great example of it. It's not vastly different. You know, maybe the original intent was different, but the, a lot of this stuff is still there. Absolutely. And then at the end, we'll get some rec- you know modern recommendations from you and then i think it, when people are listening to the modern stuff on their own and if they're familiar with these different categories they can kind of see where certain artists tend to live in some of these categories a little more than others yeah and that's 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 the fun of it you know even just playing that guessing game so this next one um 70s classic rock <laughs> very straightforward here you had two primary picks but feel free to talk about whatever you want this first one is echoes by Pig Floyd off the 1971 classic uh, metal. Um, this is probably the start of the most iconic sort of incarnation of Pink Floyd. But yeah. Um, yeah, what does this one do for you guys? I mean, aside from what it does to every human who hears it, of course. You know, I, I don't think my reaction to it is too different than anyone else's. We, we could have put in Dark Side of the Moon. We could have put in Wish You Were Here. We could have put in Uma Guma, you know, whatever. It's once again... Would you call Pink Floyd a jam band? No. It's the music is highly thought out. You know, we, we chose this one because it doesn't rely as much on vocals as a lot of their later stuff did. But it was you know, as far as I was concerned, it was the original head music, like this this is what headphones were made for in nineteen seventy one and seventy two. And yes, you know, were we listening to Beach Boys Pet Sounds or Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band by the Beatles? Yes, of course we were. Uh, were those deep listening albums? Yes, of course they were. But this was this was a whole different thing. You know, mm-hmm. only a, a couple of years later, and, and all of a sudden, this is like psychedelic stoner music like we hadn't thought possible and um it could have just been the time of our lives it could have been the marijuana talking who knows i have no idea but between this and the grateful dead music that was being made more or less around the same period of time it was just like 
to be able to experience deep connection and deep listening to music that had little or no lyrics was pretty amazing. And we, you know, people never didn't think of Grateful Dead or Pink Floyd as an instrumental band because they did have melodies with people singing um, lyrics, but I'll, there'd be long tracks of their music that had nothing. And um, yes, Grateful Dead is the classic jam band, and I would say that Pink Floyd was not. So, you know, we could do a whole podcast on what the difference is between the two, but yeah, yeah. there there is different in intention in both parts, and uh, and I I just think it's uh, amazing. The uh, it's kind of hard to find these days, but Antonioni's um, original soundtrack to Zabriskie Point was both Pink Floyd and Jerry Garcia reacting in real time to the movie as they watched it. And uh, a lot of the music that they made never ended up in the movie, but Mm -hmm. their soundtrack work was ultimately released by Ryko Disc with all the tracks that they'd recorded. And it's amazing to hear those two artists side by side reacting to the same imagery in an instrumental fashion and what they pulled from it. So I think that talking about two tent poles from that period, that's why we pulled the Grateful Dead and Pink Floyd, who most people probably wouldn't put under the same tent, but in this case, it seemed to make a lot of sense. I love that you put them side by side. Yeah. So the other the other track that was selected was Dark Star by Grateful Dead, live at the Fillmore West San Francisco version. Um, yeah, it makes sense what you're saying. These are two epic, long tracks that are largely instrumental. I mean, if you're comparing like Pink Floyd as a whole, Grateful Dead as a whole to like your Beach Boys, your Beatles, your whatever, Deep Purple's, Gene Clark's at the time. When you think of those groups that I just mentioned, you think largely of vocal melodies right Right. like if you're thinking of floyd if you're thinking of the dead like yeah they've got they got plenty of sticky like melodies and and amazing vocal lines but it's those extended instrumental sections the dynamics this open space that both of these tracks provide like you know when someone's hitting play on um on echoes or dark star like yeah, you're in for something like your next your next 30 minutes or however you know 20 or 30 minutes is going to be <laughs> a certain way and you're going to be able to like feed off of the people that are in the room it's almost like competition who is the most familiar with this track that's why we provided the live version of uh, dark star because that is why people listen to us like what are they going to do now you know how are they going to approach this song now Those two bands were iconic for people, you know, they became very popular for their songs, but their fan base loves both of those bands for the extended things that 
that are, you know, the extended instrumental sections that are unique to both bands. I imagine Neil Young, Crazy Horse, important here too. And the Velvet Underground as well. I yeah. mean, uh, the, um, Didn't think of them, yeah, absolutely. If if you, I could do a whole podcast talking just about the similarities between Grateful Dead and the Velvet Underground. They're both happening at exactly the same time on opposite coasts, creating what people were calling psychedelic experiences, extended jams, and and you could not think of two bands that were more different. Yeah, it's music you you never shed, right? Like no, no. it doesn't matter when you hear Echoes or, or Dark Star, right? Like that's gonna that's just gonna stick with you, you know, going going forward, and you're gonna be pressing play on on that stuff, like probably a lot more frequently than you are some some of the other stuff that your musical discoveries you've uncovered for sure so in that same realm you know of like timeless music you know country music is the next section and you've got you know three selections here of course it was probably difficult to to showcase but i understand you probably want to showcase some stuff that might that might surprise people that might not be such obvious points yeah i mean we we already talked about you know our love, my love in particular of country music and specifically of like a, an era, you know, do I love Hank Williams and the stuff from the fifties? Yes, of course. But sort of the country pop was something that, and I, and I think it was because of the era that we all grew up in when country music was slotted in between, you know, you would hear Wichita linemen slotted right up against uh, uh, the Archies, right up against the Monkees, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, the animals doing House of the Rising Sun. Plus, the, you know, it just got thrown into the mix. It was, And so the songs that um, I brought here are just, I have to say right off the bat, the Wichita linemen is my number one all-time favorite song of all time. I mean... Bar none. Beautiful. I, I, I don't even have to think about it. I loved it. Yeah. And, and I've been saying this. I've been saying this, this since 1975 or whenever. And and I and I, every year I keep reevaluating. Like, is there something I like better? And, and no, I don't. <laughs> I'm a lineman for the county And I drive the main road Searching in the sun for another overload I hear you singing in the wire I can hear you through the wine and the Witcher tall lineman is still on the line. I could talk till the end of time about everything that I like about this song. Uh, but and is it a country song? I, I I don't know. To me, it's just it's it's iconic. You know, a lot of classic songwriters believe that it's one of the best pop songs ever written and 
Dolly Parton's Jolene. I feel the same way about that. Patsy Cline's Walking After Midnight. George Jones' The Window Up Above. These are all songs, going back to what I said before, that to me are just classic country songs. They're not Americana. They're not pop songs. They're they're amazing American standards that, that are just great country songs. And though all of the songs I just mentioned, a lot of people think that, uh, you know, Harry Nelson's Everybody's Talking is in there too. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not considered standards, but they have all been considered at one time or another cheesy. And people have, you know, not thought them worthy of um, being historic artifacts. But I think the time has proven in all these cases that these songs are have stood the test of time and their production, their performances, the, the economy of the songwriting. Uh, yeah, you had the Wrecking Crew on Wichita Lineman, right? Yeah, of course, of course. Yeah. That, you know, the, that song was written in an afternoon and recorded in an evening. And the song was unfinished when they recorded it. Jimmy Webb, who wrote the song, hadn't done the third verse yet. And Glenn Campbell said, I don't care. I'll just put in a guitar solo where I, my guitar solo will just copy the exact melody of the song. And, that, and that'll be it. And the, he plays the melody on a baritone guitar. Some people say it was a six-string bass. It was one of the two. But it's one of the classic guitar sounds of all time. And every time we, we play a baritone guitar in in Sus, it's like... That's what you're going for? <laughs> yeah, North if, Star. if we can even just get close to that, it would be amazing. It's like that or like the Twin Peaks theme, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. This song is, in fact, not about a football player from Wichita. This is my own shit, of course. It It is the most existential love song you can ever imagine. Imagine a love song based upon watching a lineman, a telephone lineman, up at the top of a telephone pole working on some lines. That's what I had to, like, understand because I was like, lineman, what are they talking about here? You know, they were the employees of these of the telephone companies, which were utilities, like owned by the counties that they were Yeah, operating. the county, the lineman for the county. And he's up on this line, and Jimmy Webb is an imagining the communications moving through this wire, the you know, that little, and you, and, and, uh, he plays the special effects at the end of the song where he's approximating an electrical circuit going through a wire. Oh, as I said, don't get me started on this song. I I won't be able to stop. It just goes on and on and on. Well, we can, we can move to the next one that you mentioned too. You've talked about this a couple of times, Harry Nielsen's everybody's talking. This is from midnight cowboy Two. Harry Nelson, who's you know one of the great songwriters of all time, he didn't write this song. This is written by Fred Neil, mm-hmm. um, a Canadian. But it's just, you know, it's a really, really sad song, sung in a really upbeat way. Everybody's talking at me. I don't hear words they're saying Only the echoes of my mind People stopping staring I can't see their faces 
Only the shadows of their eyes I'm going where the sun keeps shining Through the pouring rain Going where the weather suits my clothes Banking off of the northeast winds Sailing on summer breeze Skipping over the ocean like a stone. And uh, if, if you've never seen the movie, I hate to ruin it for you, but it's shown over the end of the movie as the main character in the movie dies in the backseat of the bus. It's just, you cannot separate the song from the image in the movie. Though he's singing about happy stuff, it's really about no that he's he's living a life that's less than real. Yeah, mm. it's it's interesting. Did you know the movie's theme was originally intended to be uh, "Lay Lady Lay"? Yeah, yeah. But the song wasn't like submitted in time or something for production. So, yeah, I I got to see this movie. That's definitely one of. The, I have a lot of like things to do after going down this rabbit hole with you, and I would put that one at the top of your list. And then the other one that I had here was um, that you that you'd brought up was um, Olden in the Way, Midnight Moonlight. So this is Jerry Garcia's bluegrass band. But I also think maybe this can just function as a representative of bluegrass music on the whole. I know I know you grew up on bluegrass, have familiarity, you know, more than a familiarity right. with it. But uh, how do you ha- do you have a gauge on how maybe how it translates to ambient Americana? Because in a lot of ways, bluegrass is so you know vocally focused, right, and like chops focused. And while a ton of ambient country artists have chops, like uh, obviously, um, it doesn't necessarily come out in this way. So maybe like what qualities of bluegrass maybe find themselves in ambient country? Well, I, I think that to, to start with, uh, the song Midnight in the Moonlight is one of the iconic songs off of this album. And this band really only made one album. Hmm. And with Jerry Garcia on banjo and Peter Rowan uh, on guitar um, and Vassar Clements on violin. And it basically, in the early 70s, this album together with the Nitty Gritty Dirt Bands, Will the Circle Be Unbroken, sort of defined the common ground between bluegrass and hippies. It it, it rebooted, you know, bluegrass as an art form was started by Bill Monroe in the mid-50s, same time as about Elvis Costello. I mean, Elvis Costello. Elvis Presley. And um, so it had been around for almost 20 years by that time, but it was thought of as a music for hillbillies. And then in the early 70s, people started recognizing that, wow, there's roots Americana music. There's something to it. And Jerry Garcia, once again, is at the forefront of, of bringing people's consciousness around to it. Yeah. 
the reason that we included it in here is because it's what gave people like Jonathan and I a deeper understanding of what country and country bluegrass can be. And in our path, which is not a common path, but it's actually more common than I thought. You know, I, I talked to the guys in North Americans and, and Hayden Pedigo and um, Andrew Tuttle. They all cut their teeth on more of this kind of music. So w- once you master that kind of music, then, then to be able to deconstruct it in a way where it's a ma- where you have the mastery of the instrument, and it's not so much woodshedding how many notes can you get in, but it's like how can you elicit the same feeling with a with a whole different mindset and minimum number of notes, um, melodies, chord changes, all of that. It definitely uh, infects the music. One of the important aspects of whether you're talking about country music or Americana music in general is um, how you construct a melody over a limited number of chords. And that's, and that is, how is it that most country music is made over a one, four, five progression, GCD, and with just slight variations of melody, combinations of chords to be able to create endless amount of emotion. And it's obviously it's obvious when somebody does it well, and it's really obvious when somebody doesn't do it well. And I think that all of the more modern artists that I mentioned, we all spend a lot of time trying to time trying to capture capture that that lightning in the jar over a minimum amount of chord changes. Sometimes no chord changes at all. Sometimes it's just a drone. How, how do you use one chord and still create a melody that is timeless even if it's repeated over and over and over again for three five seven 15 minutes you know mm-hmm. it's, it's a magic trick it, yeah <laughs> it's 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 really really hard and how do you do it and try to to capture a multitude of emotions is really hard too it, to be honest it's a lot easier to make something sound dirgy and sad but if you want to elevate or or create bliss and or release, that takes a lot of crafting. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 you hear that bore out in the some of the more conscious modern Americana and modern ambient country stuff that comes in. There's a whole spectrum of mood and like you're saying, you can get stuff that's dirgy and it's that's that's what it's trying to do and Maybe even on the same record, you got something that's incredibly uplifting and, and beautiful, um, and then every shade in between too. So, yeah. yeah. So I mean, if you so going back to holding in the way, midnight in the moonlight, the majority of that song is an instrumental section in the center. You know, it's a very long song. Yeah. In the middle is all completely instrumental, where everyone in the band takes their whack at a court. At a chord progression that's only two chords going back and forth, and you see how five different instruments can completely change the nature and mood of a given track over those two chords by just their expertise. It's it's amazing. Yeah, no, I loved listening. I loved listening to this. I had this one on repeat for sure. Um, fantastic stuff. I didn't even know Jerry Garcia had a little bluegrass band. So. <laughs> mm. um, 
All right, let's move on to the next category. This is uh, jazz. So how does jazz find its way in? Because I know you've mentioned to me that jazz heads seem to really gravitate to sus. Um, and I think like right off the bat, I think of the importance of tone in jazz and how so much of my favorite ambient country music really revels in tonality and really yep. like seems very belabored to like get, get that right tone. But I'll, I'll leave it to you to kind of like uh, expand that out a little bit. Yeah, it wasn't our intention. It came as a surprise that jazz heads got into what it is that we're doing. But I, I think the fact that we get five musicians on the stage playing instrumental music, interacting in much the same way as, as jazz, where it's a highly structured music, but then within the structure, you're trying to push against the, um, the boundaries to, um, to create special moments whether those special moments are um, on a recording or whether in a live situation. I've never played jazz. I've played way too much bluegrass. I would say that jazz is more about listening. And I think that that's what people get out of Sus and um, other acts like, like us. You can tell that when we're on stage, or even you can hear it in the albums, that we are totally listening to what the other person is doing mm -hmm. and subtly reacting to that in real time. Bluegrass music, it's like when somebody goes and does a ripping uh, mandolin solo, they're not listening to anything else other than the beat. The other players can kind of just go into like, you know, I'm just backing this guy up, so this is just mindless getting through it. <laughs> yeah, and that's why you go see that. So you get to see everyone do their star turn on the instrument that they're playing, on every song, you know, I'll get a different star turn. Um, and yes, there's that aspect in jazz as well, but you can really tell that people are acting and reacting in real time to what's going on. They're not jamming, but, uh, it, uh, and I think that, that the, you know, the primary track that we chose uh, in a silent way by Miles Davis is the perfect, perfect example of it. You know, there's three keyboard players on there, like three of the most famous keyboard players of all time. They're all playing at the same time, but completely different tones and, and taking a different approach. They set up this mood and this vibe. And I don't even think Miles comes in until like the three minute mark or the four minute mark. And then when he does, it's just, he's not trying to blow people away with how many notes he can play. He's blowing people away by the right note at the right time and and it's just astounding you know it's i i, I don't even want to put us in the same paragraph or sentence <laughs> as any of that 
but at our best, that's what we strive for. And the music that we like the most across all genres, that's what we strive for. It's, as you said, the sense of tone, the sense of reserve, the, the sense of soul is, uh, and it just, it just resonates. You know, it resonates through time. Mm-hmm. And, and the other Miles track you selected here, he loved him madly, um, off, which is off Get Up With It. I am so glad you picked this track because I've always found this one to be su- such like an interesting expansion of what we know as jazz. I mean, this track veers into so many other styles and expressions. It's really psychedelic. Um, it's got like those flutes and Miles' muted playing is just so, it's so like yeah. connect- connected to ambient country in my mind. I know this track is like a tribute to Duke Ellington, who had who had passed away somewhat recently. But I, you know, cites this track as incredibly influential to his ambient work. So like Definitely. a little bit of a full, full circle moment, you know. Yeah, yeah. I don't have anything else to add. I, you know, I'm just this is what this is one of the ones where the clips the clips are going to do all the work. <laughs> yeah. Just got a couple more categories here. Let's uh, let's dive into this one. It's a fun one. Krautrock. Did not expect to see this one here, but upon listening to this stuff, it makes a lot of sense. Once again, Eno was my gateway drug to Krautrock. Well, Eno and Kraftwerk. In the 70s, I don't think they were calling it Krautrock then, but you said you, you, listen, you were listening to Kraftwerk and nothing sounded like Kraftwerk. So it was a little hard to get into, you know, it was hard to get into the other bands, the Purple Blue and Wayne. It just, because Kraftwerk was so singular in their sound and their melodies. And um, But once again, as soon as I got deeply into Eno, and then Eno introduced me to Cluster and Mobius and Rodelius and then Harmonia and anything that he did with them, I just listened to. And, and then then I started diving in deeper to the older, more established artists like Can, New or Noed, depending on how you pronounce it, and Popovu. And it's amazing that now, over time, I still like Kraftwerk, but I have a hard time listening to Kraftwerk. It's too, it's too structured. The, their very first album, which was called Ralph and Florian, which, which was their most rockish type of record. I can listen to all the time. Unfortunately, it's hard to find and it's not no longer in print. But the further they went on, the more structured they got. And it became, you've just heard it so many times in so many, you know, computer world. How many times can you hear computer world? It's just much like some of Philip Glass's music or some of the other artists we were talking about, it's just in the air and it's like, okay. Yeah. But, but I've been able to, I, there's probably a, a week does not go by where I don't re-listen to the Harmonia and Eno album because it uh-huh. is so rich. 
It's so human. That's what I love about it. You can, I think they made that record over a weekend. And you can tell it's just four or five guys sitting in a room reacting to each other in the most amazing way. And they come up with these really simple melodies. They don't try to move outside of their comfort zone very far. But when they do, when they push it, it goes into unbelievably beautiful places. And, and I never get tired of listening to that album. And, and that can be said for most of these other tracks that I brought up. They're inventive. They feel homespun. They feel a little crusty and crude. And uh, it just, they've worn well over time. I, I, I was happy to see, uh, I was reading an interview about William Tyler, and he was saying that he was heavily influenced by Krautrock. And I was like, whoa, really? I never would have guessed that. But, you know, and so... Um, He's got a country kraut rock song. Does he? Yeah, with like the motoric beat and everything. Uh, I forget what it's called. I'll have to check that out. I don't know that one. I'll send it to you. It's great. Yeah. So I, it it's it's in there. And though you know, obviously, Sus doesn't use drums or doesn't really have the propulsive beat that most kraut rock has. That, and that's why I I put the popo vu in there using acoustic instruments, not electronic instruments, mm-hmm. to create these repetitive textures and embed within those textures these very elegant, elegant, sometimes intricate um, melodies I really like. So, Yes, the Harmonian Uno track you're referring to is called Welcome from the Tracks yeah. and Traces album. So Harmonia was noise guitarist, right? Michael Rother. And then... Yeah both members of Cluster, or maybe all members of Cluster? Yeah, Definitely R- I think Rodelius so. and Mobius. This is one of the most stunning pieces of like ambient kind of progressive rock I think has ever been made. I've actually featured this track on a previous episode. Oh, really? Myself. Oh, that's cool. I did, I, I did a two-part on like older 70s synth synthesizer work and then like kind of like more modern stuff, like a part one, part two. I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll end the self-promotion there, but if you want to go back and listen to that episode, it was a good one. And then this pulp, I, I, I love that you picked this Popo Vu track. This one's called Morgan Grew from yeah. Einsjager and Siebenjager. Boy, you're, I, I wouldn't even attempt to pronounce that. I'm glad you did. So. <laughs> I mean, I don't know that I got it right. This is my favorite Krautrock group, Opopovu. Um, this band explored many different styles of music, but the pick that you selected here is Popovu at their most kind of like rock band form. They're yeah. very still very mystical and cosmic, but like doing so through these kind of like, I think I hear like Eastern scales in the riffs, crescendos, very guitar-led kind of, free flowing and jammy too but this era of popo views music um you know makes me wonder if they were channeling like their natural environment like the bavarian countryside and stuff like that yeah it's it's their most of the sounds uh, are though propulsive are made by acoustic instruments and it, it you know i could draw 
this is their version of the third Led Zeppelin album. If you know oh, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, you know, where totally. Led Zeppelin decided to bring out the lap steel and the, the mandolins and the acoustic guitars and uh, on their on their third album. This is kind of like the Popo Blue version. And this track is, is this 12 string it's got to be right yeah i think so yeah, yeah. beautiful playing love it yeah. you know just stepped into germany and just started talking to every single band that was playing at the time clearly captured his attention yeah i'm never quite sure how much he actually did on any of those records um because at that period of time you just had to put eno's name on an album and there would be knuckleheads like me just buying the album no matter what um mm. so you know, he was the gateway drug for me for so many artists. Was this pre, like, the stuff he did with Bowie? Did this well, predate not, that? Yeah, but Bowie's, the, you know, but more, you know, like Robert Wyatt album. And uh, yeah. uh, Ruth is Stranger Than Richard, he had a big part in. And uh, his whole, the Penguin Cafe and the Symphonia Orchestra, there's just so many records. I mean, it seemed like this was maybe 1970. Five. I'll, I'll just pick a number out. Seventy six. Yeah, it seemed yeah, like right. every week that I went to the record store, there was another record with Eno's name on it. You know, he was working with Devo. Then he was working with Talking Heads. He was working with, you know, all the No Wave bands. Uh, you know, uh, Pat worked mm-hmm. with Eno on one of the one of his No Wave records. So mm-hmm. uh, he was just all over the place. You know, touching his magic wand on all these different types of music. And, um, I, you know, I, I, I hate to overstate the case, but that magic wand affected me in a, a million different ways. You know, and a lot of the things that we've been talking about on this show are because of that magic wand that had been waved around in the air. I know he is such, <laughs> he's such an important guy. And anyone you talk to says it, but it, I feel like still in the public consciousness, he's not a household name. I mean, I don't know that yeah. he wants to be or that he needs to be. I'm not saying that's important, but I'm just saying, like, who touched more strains of music than Eno? Like, in the last yeah, not even just music. Years. Like, you know, the the start theme for Windows or something was the sound yeah. that he made. You know, it just goes on and on and on and on about the stuff that he does. Yeah, yeah. There's literally not a human that has not like been in touch with some with something that he's he's had a hand in, right? Yeah, it's crazy. Um, well, that's Krautrock. We are on to our last category here, modern guitar. Like in terms of like kind of defining this out, how, how far back are we talking in this category, modern guitar? I know your picks are mostly in the 70s and 80s, but also like what, what do you mean by modern guitar? 
Well, I, I guess in, in many ways, these are contemporary artists to us, you know, guitar heroes. But, you know, for all intent and purposes, a lot of people think of Pat as a guitar hero. You know, I do. I know that I do. And yeah. he, he can do just about anything. Uh, you know, as I said, he was in the Ray Beats. He was in Eight-Eyed Spy. He was in the B-52s. I mean, can you imagine stepping into Ricky Wilson's shoes with the B-52s? I, it's just like, you know, he played with him for 20 years. It's it's an unbelievable legacy. One of the most innovative guitarists, totally. Yeah. Uh, you know, and guitar gods are something that have had a big impact on me. Reeves Gabrels was in Rubber Rodeo for the last, you know, and I follow Reeves Gabrels. He was with Bowie for 20 years and was in the queue. He's another guitar god. Uh, but when we talk about the ones, you know, Bill Frizzell, we, we can't talk enough. He's just amazing, Bill Frizzell. Tom Verlaine recently passed away. Unbelievable. We can go on and a lot of our touchstones Robert Quine from the Voidoids. Uh, guitar gods are are big for us. Of what they're a, what one man in a guitar can do is amazing. Uh, contemporaries, you know, we've already mentioned William Tyler. He's another one. Mm-hmm. Um, Steve Gunn. In, yeah. In that, um, we're talking basically about Hayden Pettigo. Unbelievable. Right. Uh, just impressive. Anybody can pick up a guitar and find new ways to blow my mind. Totally. Let's start with this Tom Verlaine track, uh, Spiritual. I never heard this before. In fact, I'm really unfamiliar with Tom Verlaine's solo stuff, which I am kicking myself. Well, you're not, you're not alone in that. <laughs> no, he, not that he made that much. And, and, yeah. um, and it's always it's very hard to find. This this track was off of a solo album that was on a Ryko disc release in the 90s, maybe? 92. Yeah, 92. Yeah. So, uh, but it's beautiful. It's really simple. I mean, everyone knows Tom for the two albums that he did with, with television, which are, will stand, I will stand the test of Tom. Marky Moon will probably continue to be one of the most famous guitar solo songs of all time. But, uh, I, I think that if I could look at three songs, personally, guitar god songs, Tom Verlaine and Marky Moon, David Gilmore in Comfortably Numb, hmm. and uh, and Neil Young in Like a Hurricane. Yeah, you know, I can't stop listening. You know, those songs will never go old for me because of the guitar solos in the middle. It's uh, they're amazing expressions of guitar gods and uh and they do though we don't you know sus does not have those types of solos or expressions in our music that ability to coax that sort of emotion out of an instrument is not to be lost yeah ambient country is not solos aren't getting ripped you know like in this in this style of music but there's certainly influence taken from iconic guitar parts. There's this artist, I don't know if you know him, I'll send I'll send him to you after this name, Tulum Shimmering. And no, I don't know. His whole thing, he's out of he's out of the UK, new newer artist. He has a request series where people just say, take an iconic song and he comes back with this meditative thirty to fifty minute 
guitar like expose where he stretches out wow. just one part of the melody in the, the iconic oh, melody. No, and he, I do know that artist. I've s- he does us for Marky Moon, actually. Yeah, that's how I know it. Yeah, that's how I know it. It's- and it's beautiful stuff. But again, it's yeah. like it's it's. Stri- I'm bringing it up because it strikes me as like what you're saying is is true. It's really just taking you know a short melodic phrase or idea and like just really honing in on it and staying there but also just being patient with it and unraveling it over time and you know probably a lot of some of the techniques that you were talking about in like the classical section probably come into play there you know what one of the things that uh i was having it for one of my podcasts i was uh had the guys um patrick mcdermott and barry walker from north americans they were co-hosts and as in most cases with podcasts all the best stuff ends up on the cutting room floor, but we were he was talking about one of the reasons that he likes sus and was something I'd never really heard or considered before, which was that he said that unlike a lot of the other bands in our genre, you can feel the bliss building in the song and you continue to build on it and build on it and bring the bliss up but you never explode with the bliss. It's that, you know, where another act would just like finally just release you, you bring it up almost to the release and then you let it go again. And he said that that, that tension of coming so close to bliss, but never going over the top is the thing that makes him want to listen to it over and over and over again. Because if you hit the bliss every time, it would it might burn you out but i said wow never thought about it like that but maybe you're right (laughs) and that's and so the guitar guy you know david gilmore bill frizzell tom verlaine they hit the bliss every time and god love them for doing it and uh so we're sort of like we don't do that but we try every way possible to bring as people as close to that as possible and the Frizzell track you selected, uh, what is it, Shenandoah? Shenandoah, oh, Shenandoah, yeah. classic, a mere piece of Americana. Yes, it bears to say another bl- a blind spot for me, but for those who don't know, Frizzell's jazz guitarist, fixture of like the 80s, kind of New York City experimental scene, worked with John Zorn. Um, oh, he's worked with everybody. Right? Yeah, but um, you know there were two versions of this song that I think you, you put on the playlist. One is from live album East West from 05, which is described as jazz fusion kind of mixed with Americana. That version reminds me of a, do you know the Daruti column? It reminds me yeah. of that, that group a fair, a fair amount, which who I love, especially the tone of the guitars. But the other version is from the album, good dog, happy man from 99. And that's, and that's very, very minimal, very, uh, yeah, very, uh, high notes. It's the two versions. Right. It, it just shows you once again, going back to what we were talking about before about, Having a structure, in this case, a classic piece of Americana writing, um, the song Shenandoah, and then how you can push against that to create a wide variety of emotion.
Absolutely. What about the um, Dead Man soundtrack by Neil Young? What's uh, I love everything that about one? that soundtrack except for the fact of the talking over it, which makes it. Yeah. Oh God, that that kills me. But it's Johnny Depp, right? Yeah, it's saying William Blake poems or something. Oh yeah, no, it's it's one of those. Um, Neil Young is uh, a musical genius. If maybe not one of my favorite artist personalities that I know, but a musical genius, he, he had his moment. And um, this is this harkens back to what we were talking about with Pink Floyd and Jerry Garcia in Zabriskie Point. Basically just picking up a guitar, watching a projected image on a wall, and reacting to it in real time and and finding the finding the commonality between human fingers on a guitar neck and an image on a screen. And that's just there's no way to make that sound or look easy. It's it's a really hard thing to do. And in the case of Neil Young, he made it look effortless. Jerry Garcia did the same thing. Uh, Pink Floyd did the same thing. I guess a lot of musicians when, who are incredible at their instrument would not want to be tasked with that. Right? You know? No, that, that takes a lot of guts. I mean, it's one thing to have to somebody send you a film and labor over uh, musical structure, tonality, melodies harmonies over a period of time but to look at an image in real time and and react to it and have that be the react to it immediately and simply and have that be the final product is a gutsy gutsy thing to do for the filmmaker and for the musician And, and what, what Neil Young interpreted was very stark and ominous and pretty noisy at times, too. It's he very, was in like, his grungiest period, for sure. You know, yeah. He was, this is you know, he'd just done Russ Never Sleeps, I think, and that whole area of... I mean, he, he people say he invented grunge, and I he did. Yeah. He, didn't mean, he didn't mean to, I don't think, but... No, but he he's another one of those guys like the... He only has about three or four, maybe five chords in his repertoire. But man, he's written a lot of great melodies and a lot of great lyrics over a minimum number of chord changes. Much like Dylan, but uh, but uh, with a with a, obviously with a different sense of music. Yeah, and I know the '90s were known for really crunchy, loud guitars, but they're. As, as, as I know you know, Bob, there is a host of quiet guitar-centered albums that are in the early 90s and mid-90s that you should absolutely seek out. I'm thinking of stuff like Le Bradford and oh, a lot yeah. of that cr- cranky and temporary residence uh, kind of work, movie tone, stuff like that. Man, I go to the 90s for the quiet stuff. Honestly, I don't go for the loud, even though I like, I like, yeah. I grew up, what, I grew up on that stuff and love it. One of one of the um, one of the genres of, that I left out, thankfully, 
that I could have put in there is just the cranky genre because yeah, you know whether you're talking Le Bradford, Stars of the Lid, Lossal, Godspeed, Emperor, um, mm-hmm. just goes on and on. I mean, and all of them were amazing in their own unique way. Putting put together as a group, it's a, it's an unbelievable thing. I I, uh, I devoured that book they recently came out with. You was stupid, uh, yeah. by Bruce Adams, mm-hmm. um, and and I've got uh, Mark Nelson on the, on my next podcast. So I'm looking forward to really picking his brain about the Le Bradford years. And, can't wait to hear that. And and just as a reminder to listeners, um, go on, if you're on Spotify, um, just uh, punch in Ambient Country, hit go to podcast. It'll come up. I'll also link it in the show notes. Is, is there any other way to get it? Or is it just, it's just Spotify right now? No, this this summer, though, I'm going to do my best to uh, get it onto a common platform, much like yours is, so that more people can get it. Because you know, to be only on Spotify is kind of, shooting myself in the foot especially if they're not paying you (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) the best reputation for paying people uh all right so the last the last one fripp and eno evening star this is kind of full circle i guess if we count eno's apollo as some kind of starting point right but the funny thing is there's only like a 10 year difference between the two but yeah, what is it about this one? I, this is a this is a classic, of course. Yeah, it's a it's a. I could have picked any song on this album. I mean, my um, girlfriend in college, who then went to be the lead singer in Rubber Rodeo, who then uh, became the mother of my child and my first wife. I was an art school nerd listening to Genesis and and Gentle Giant and Jethro Tull and. Yes, and just I had my head so far up my prog rock ass at that time, <laughs> and she said, "Please pull your head out of your ass. Just listen to this album, No Pussy Footing." And it's true to the title. <laughs> yeah, I could not believe it, and that I listened to No Pussy Footing, that got me into Roxy music, and that got me into all the artists associated with Roxy music, and then it got me into Eno. She got me listening to No Pussyfooting because she was tired of hearing me talk about King Crimson. And she said, why, why don't you listen to something that's good by, <laughs> by Robert Fripp? Because and, and, um, she couldn't stand one more Court of the Crimson King, I think. And, um, and she was right. And I've never looked back. And as much as I like that album and the cool cover and, you know, the, the, the sexy playing cards on the, on the cover and, everything about it you know's wild haircut it was the next album after that where it all just came together and it's like beautiful that album evening star has has stood the test of time no pussyfooting i still like in small doses but i can listen to the album evening star and equatorial stars the one that came out for any day it's just it never gets old and the just the simplicity of one guy playing guitar and another guy playing keyboards, not a lot of overdubs, hardly any overdubs. Mm-hmm. And the music that they made, you can listen to. They just recently released a live album of the two of them playing those songs in 1976 live. J. 
just the two instruments, just keyboard and guitar. And it sounds almost just like the original wow. record. It's yeah, just doing like it, tape tape loops live and stuff. Tape tape loops live and um and just very simple uh keyboard figures uh and very complicated guitar figures. It's amazing. And that is, you know, guitar rock god one oh one, Robert Fripp. He makes it sound very simple when when it's very, very comp what he's playing is very complicated, but in the context of the music comes off as very soothing you're not it's not a lot of ripping guitar solos it's just these amazing repetitions of beds and notes that um, is great and uh, you know whether it's wind on water or water on water or track i think you're playing is evening star it's they're all amazing the most like cosmic staring up at the night sky type music ever created oh, yeah. uh, i i can't imagine doing any other activity to this music other than that it just seems like it what it was meant for so and that is very in theme with you know the high and lonesome sort of thing high and lonesome as it relates to the universe and everything yeah no, beyond really that. you feel it evokes a space you're in a it's almost like you're in a a distinct, no matter where you're listening to it, what time of day or night, when you listen to that music, it puts the listener in a distinct space, an environment. Now, each listener may have their own particular version of that space, but uh, it's definitely made to pick you up and put you in a place. And I, you know, at at our at our best, when when we're doing things right, that's what Sus tries to do. For sure. And, and that's going to do it for the the categories that we went over or that kind of comprise ambient country, uh-huh. according to according to Bob and the, the rest of the guys in SUS. The very last thing that, that we'll do, and, and thanks so much for, for the, uh, I know this is a little bit of a marathon session. Oh, no problem. <laughs> uh, what modern albums are, are, are some of your faves? Um, I don't want you to alienate maybe some of your friends <laughs> or anything like that. We only have time for a few, of course. I'm going to remove the awkwardness unless you like to promote self-promotion. Not everyone does, but I do recommend everyone dive into the growing sus catalog personally for me i think highline and promise are great starting places but you guys also released your self-titled album this year which is a double album that collects what three recent eps and across the horizon yeah four actually four each each ep is a side of the album 
Gotcha. And you can snag that from from Northern Spy Records. I checked today, and there's kind of a dangerously low level of LPs left. Yeah, so. it's been it's been quite a good <laughs> set of all of our albums. It's who'd ever thought that a double album would be so popular, but it's been our most popular, which is great. Love it. Yeah, you talk about this all the time on your podcast, but um, just for my for my listeners, what are some good modern places to start? It could be an artist, it could be a record, whatever you want. Well. Uh, I'll say I'll have a broad answer for you first, and that would be just go check out the podcast and, and see who I have on the show and sure. um, who we play on the show. But modern artists, we love Andrew Tuttle, Chuck Johnson, William Tyler, Luke Schneider. And, and we're, I'm just talking about artists in our specific genre. If, if I went outside of that, it would get really broad really fast. And, and uh, you know, we've already talked about some Bill Frizzell, and, uh, Bang on a Can, another uh, sort of new classical composer, big for us. We still listen to everything that Philip, you know, whatever Philip Glass puts out, we still listen to it. See? But, you know, going back to more of the country fringe stuff, Howard Hughes Sweet. Drone Room, uh, new artists like Royal Arctic Institute, The Sea Wind of Battery. Oh, man, just, I'm sure I'm forgetting something, but these are all people that were, you know, checking out, checking into. You know, one of them, going back to one of the artists that I particularly like is a guy named Chip Kinman, who is the lead singer together with his brother of Rank and File which is one of the classic Americana country punk bands from the early 80s. <clears throat> and he's, he does a thing now. It's just him in a synthesizer. And it's crazy, but beautiful music. Um, all of these people we've featured one way or the other. Did I mention Luke Schneider? Yeah, I think I mentioned Luke. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's plenty. And like you said, the, the podcast is a beautiful place to, to get on that. You do feature people who are kind of two feet firmly in this lane and then you also feature you know people like you know claire Osei, who's not firmly in it but like is adjacent to it in some ways yeah no just and to give you an idea i think we already mentioned coming up um mark nelson from la bradford uh i'll be speaking with david pajo from slint and papa m and yeah that solo pajo stuff for sure like the so yeah i mean he's he's kind of like the king of it right you know he's been doing it maybe longer than anybody else and just I, I wouldn't say quietly because he's quite popular but he's been doing it and so there's it never ends i mean there's just i'm always finding new ones every day that blow my mind great yeah i love i love the community that the podcasts and the groups like you guys have all built it's really really inspiring um but that is going to do it for us today uh bob i can't i can't thank you enough for coming on today and 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 schooling uh all of us I've had a, a couple of true gurus on the show before, and I always find that going deep on music with people who've you know got got some years on me is always so illuminating, uh, contextualizing. Just thanks for for taking on the teacher role and really kind of illuminating the style of music. Definitely appreciate your art and your your time and your energy here. Well, thank you. I mean, I I really appreciate being on the show, and as I told you before, I, you know. You might think I'm a guru in this one little niche thing, but I'm always surprised when I listen to your podcast 
that you go deep like this on so many different genres and is like, oh my goodness, I think my head would explode if I had to. to I mean, you you go broad and deep. I, I just go deep on one thing, but you go broad and then deep in many things. And, and uh, it's it's a great podcast. And, and uh, it's it's something that I would <clears throat> aspire to. I, I would, mine, mine is pretty down and dirty compared to yours. Well, I don't have any like hard skills or creative skills. I'm just experiencing my mania in lifetime with, with people. This is some version of this is going on in my head anyway. So I figure <laughs> I might as, might as well buy a mic and like get it out there and see, and see oh. what other maniacs are out there. But I appreciate the kind words. I do. I'll go ahead and drop links in the show notes to uh, Sus's Bandcamp, to Northern Spy Records, to uh, your the Ambient Country Podcast on Spotify. Um, anything else I missed there or... I, I I think you got it all. Cool. I'll also add some of the um, some of your modern ambient country recommendations into the show notes too, if people want to see that. Please subscribe to this podcast. So you don't miss an episode. Uh, you can rate and review if you got an opinion on the show. And I'll see you all back here with another rabbit hole of music, similar rabbit hole of music actually. And yeah, once again, thanks so much, Bob. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Jamil. See you soon. <laughs>